Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In a biblical narrative that is overwhelmingly anti-kingly, how can one make sense of Paul's apparent endorsement of governing authorities in Romans chapter 13? Why would Paul ask the church to submit to ruling authorities in a setting where those authorities pose a real and present danger? What implications does Paul's admonition have for civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance? Dust off that vinyl, because it's time to play a broken record, brought to you by the Pauline School. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 58 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So, Father, on Sunday, you were talking about this very interesting passage from Romans about how to work with authority. And it was really strange because, you know, you and I keep talking about the problem with authority and how the Bible is always, always undermining the power of the king. And then in this passage in Romans... Paul is saying, submit to the king. So that was, it was strange, the passage itself, in the context of what we've been doing. I want to stay on the safe side. I don't want to be contradicting scripture. So you preached about this on Sunday. Can you explain a little bit how you were able to work with this tension? Yeah, well, I mean, to me, it's very clear after dealing with scripture for several years that the more you deal with scripture, the more you begin to realize that the things that initially struck you as being contradictions or as being problematic are contradictions in terms of the way human beings think and in terms of what human beings prefer. But they are not contradictions within the context of the narrative. So it's funny, I was talking about Romans chapter 13 on Sunday, and it's this lengthy section that talks about the importance of submitting to government authorities. Now, Paul is saying this, not just in the context of the Bible's overwhelmingly anti-kingly stance. Paul is saying this in chapter 13 also in a context where there is a persecution against the church. So again, imagine, and we always use these explosive examples from current events, but imagine a militant group from Iraq was attacking a Christian group, and the head or the founder of that Christian group sent a letter to them saying, you have to submit to the very authorities that are persecuting you. Now, that's a contradiction, and that's a tension that I think is intended and noteworthy and worth pursuing and trying to understand, but it's not in contradiction with the anti-kingly stance of the Older Testament. It's really disturbing when you put it that way, Father, because it is what Paul seems to be doing, and my gut reaction is like, uh, I'm uncomfortable with that. So it is necessary to delve deeper to understand what Scripture is trying to say. Right, and I think it's important not to settle for cheap explanations that fit our identity narratives. For example, people will say that the New Testament is anti-Semitic. No, it's not anti-Semitic. I mean, it's no more or less anti-Semitic than Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, with all due respect, or Hosea, or any of the texts 
we've discussed. It's not that it's anti-Semitic. It's a critique of Israel and by extension the nations. So actually what the New Testament does is expand it to include everybody. So it's kind of an easy way of explaining away this text. You could say, well, they were trying to curry favor with the Romans, but I don't think the Romans outside the context of the church is the narrative audience here. Not to mention, I think there's plenty of things in Paul's letters themselves that are not clearly currying favor with Romans. Let's putting it gently. Right. So if you were to say that they're just currying favor with the Romans, then you've just created a new contradiction that may or may not be there anyway, but you haven't solved the problem of relieving the tension that's built up in this passage. I'd rather look at this passage within the context of the overwhelming body of evidence in Scripture that God is undermining the things that men cling to in order to reorient them towards the correct priority from his perspective. And he is using here, as he does in the prophets, whatever human institution or human authority or human situation or context is in place or happens to be in place. In other words, people hear this and they say, oh, does this mean in chapter 13 that God is telling the Roman authorities to wield the sword? No, not in any literal historical sense, because we know with or without the Bible, governments wield the sword. What Paul is saying is that when your government wields the sword, it's an opportunity for you to understand it in a specific way. This is no different, absolutely no different than what the prophets say again and again when Jerusalem is besieged, or when the people are taken into captivity, or when something terrible happens of any sort. The message is consistent. Whatever the reason is for this happening, it's happening because God is making it happen in the context of the narrative, so that you would take what is going to happen as a matter of course as an opportunity to learn. Right. And when you put it in this way, then it fits very clearly in what we've seen going on in the prophets. There were equally disturbing messages from Jeremiah and Ezekiel saying submit to the Babylonians or Hosea saying to submit to the Assyrians or, you know, time and time again, we do see this idea of submission to the enemy authorities. Now you can say that the Lord punished Pharaoh, and he never said to them that they needed to submit to Pharaoh. But then again, he did leave them for 400 years to allow them to submit to them. So there is this idea constantly throughout Scripture that you do have to submit to authorities, even or maybe even especially to those who are not favorably disposed to you. Well, and I mentioned this in my book because I deal with the instruction to honor father and mother. I mean, in my own rhetoric, I'm very critical of popular psychology and the way that people, again, in popular psychology, I'm not talking about clinical psychology, which is a science, but pseudo-psychology, you know, the self-prognosis that's prevalent in our culture. Everyone does a self-analysis and decides that all of their problems come from their parents And then they spend an endless amount of time, an inordinate amount of time, complaining about the authorities and their childhood household, which is their parents. Now, Scripture says, honor your father and mother. It doesn't say, honor your father and mother if they are honorable. It says, honor your father and mother. And I think the mechanism in that instruction from Exodus is the same mechanism at work in Romans 13, is the same mechanism at work in the prophets, because whether it's the parent God puts in front of you, or the king or the judge whom God puts in front of you, or the oppressor or your enemy or a teacher, it doesn't matter, your neighbor, 
But if that neighbor is put in front of you with some kind of authority, if you accept what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, that everything is established by God and he is the source of all authority and everything comes from him at the end and defers back to him, you have to accept that your enemy, your friend, your parent, your teacher, and the governing authorities were put in place by God. So what he's doing is reestablishing a fundamental premise that is pervasive from Genesis to Revelation, and that is that God is the one who holds everything in the palm of his hand. So if you have a problem with life, you have a problem with God. Right. I mean, it's so easy to say that, well, this ruler does not fit any paradigm that I could imagine that God would afflict people with, that God would inflict this person on humanity. I can't imagine because this person is just too horrible to imagine that God would do that because God's not that bad. It's so easy to fall into that kind of thinking. But this is silly philosophical thinking. Again, it's like the silly church school discussions about whether or not we're morally obliged to honor our parents if they're not honorable. This is a demonic discussion because it misses the point in its entirety. The issue for Paul, as always, is love. So why would you lose time fighting the government? Because you're losing time that could be spent taking care of your neighbor. Besides which, since we know that all men sin, we know that you sin, which means everybody deserves to be under pressure from some authority at some point. Because he says, and I'll read the text here in a minute, he says, look, the government wields the sword and it's there to put fear in the population so that people follow the rules. So follow the rules, because what do you care? They're not God's rules, they're man's rules. So just do what the government says. Live an orderly life, meet all of your obligations, you know, so you can get on with the business of doing the work of the gospel, which doesn't require you to fight or oppose anyone, let alone the government. So let's read through it. And again, it's very difficult for people because scripture is thoroughly subversive in its content. You know, someone who is left-leaning might say, oh, look, Paul is capitulating to the man. No. Because I can say as a Palestinian that systematically every progressive in this country for as long as I've been alive has capitulated to the man. Left or right, it doesn't matter. Scripture does not capitulate to the human being. It doesn't capitulate to our, you know, our systems of thinking and our ideologies. It undermines them. And to extend the point, whatever your political position is, even if you think by supporting a minority group such as uh, black Americans or Native Americans or Palestinians or whatever, you support the one whom you perceive to be the oppressed group, you're still not fully subversive in the way the scripture is subversive. You're still picking a side. So let's be serious because by siding with the Romans, Paul is undermining everyone because the progressives still want to tell me that there's a good side. Well, if there's a good side, then you've just transferred the man to an, another locale which is why people can say that they've solved racism, and yet people say worse things about Muslims today openly than they would ever have said about black people in the 60s. It's unbelievable, right? So we have to be serious about struggling with scripture and not putting ourselves in a position of judgment over scripture or thinking we can decide what scripture is saying for or against anything. So let's read the text. Let's go through the text, if you don't mind. Sure. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. I was referring to 1 Corinthians, but that's what Paul is saying here. Everything is established by the Lord, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. 
and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, this condemnation could be expressed in scripture in many different ways. It could be the condemnation of a foolish son in Proverbs who doesn't heed the wise instruction of his father, who is the authority in his life. It could be the destruction of Jerusalem, which fell upon the leaders of Jerusalem because of their disrespect for the Torah and their chasing after false gods, manifest in the power of foreign kings and so forth. It could be, in a very literal sense, as it relates to Paul's specific example here, it could be that by not conducting yourself in a way that supports an orderly, peaceful lifestyle within your community, you bring suffering and civil strife and civil war upon your community. Well, and if we can refer to something we talked about previously, you know, we were talking about Matthew 25 a few episodes ago, you know, the only criterion in the end is going to be how are you taking care of the needy? When you take that seriously, then your struggles against this political figure, that political figure, do get put into a different context. Exactly. For Paul says here, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. It's kind of like what the conservatives who are trying to, you know, give apologetics for the NSA, they'll say, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, what do you care if they're listening? Now, that argument makes all of us uncomfortable. We don't want anyone to listen to our private conversations. But Paul is saying the same thing in Romans 13 in order to make the church in Rome feel uncomfortable. What, do you have something to hide? Are you behaving incorrectly? Then why are you worried about the government powers? Now, if the government comes because they're persecuting you because you're a Christian, praise the Lord, bear witness to the gospel. So either you deserve it, or it's a martyria, which is a classic theme in scripture. You know, on the one hand, when Christians were recently killed in the Middle East and there was a group of them, people were excited. They said, okay, we have these martyrs. And, you know, they began praying to them as martyrs. And then when literally one week later, there are Christians who are kidnapped, everyone is calling for their release. It's always struck me as inconsistent how on the one hand you say, thank God they're martyrs, but then you say, but we don't want people to suffer. They're not compatible because the only way to make them compatible is say, if they suffer, if they don't suffer, it's always from God. And that's the thing that's difficult to stomach. It's unpalatable to say that. But I think this is the message we keep seeing because this is what you're showing from this passage in Romans 13 is that all power comes from God. Whatever is happening is coming from God. Whether they're taken in captivity, whether they're released, whether they're killed, it doesn't matter. It's all from God. This is why, and it's classic in Christian martyriology, the martyr is not a victim. The martyr is an anointed one, like Christ. The martyr is the one who is crowned with suffering because it is a privilege that God would will your death for the cause of the gospel. And if that's the case, you have no right to be upset at the militants who executed the 21 Copts because those 21 Coptic Christians were in the palm of the Lord. I think that all of this language about, oh, the poor Christians and all of this, this that we see in the media is a sign of a lack of faith. Look at the letters from Ignatius. I mean, it, Ignatius was having to fight this among his own people saying, let me be martyred. If it's my time to be martyred, let me be martyred. Don't try to free me. And I think that a lot of people, they read Ignatius and they get excited. But the thing is, is that they can't do what St. Ignatius is telling them to do. Don't fight it. If this is what the government is doing, don't fight it. But let it be to God's glory. And when it says to God's glory, it means not to mine and to yours, 
but to God's glory. Now, the human impulse in all situations is to say there's a right and there's a wrong, there's an oppressor and there's a victim. I mean, we've been over this before, but that's not how Paul is talking in Romans 13. The way he's talking is there is, in this case, the example, the opposing force is the governing authorities, and there is you, and you're my issue. What have I to do with other people's children? I'm talking to you. You know how you have to behave. You know that nothing is an issue for you but the gospel of love. So why would you resist the authorities? I know it's tempting because the Romans are persecuting us, but why would you resist them? Let's go on. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, a philosopher, an ethical philosopher would say, well, Father Mark, is God for or against war? What's the Bible saying about war here, Father Mark? How could God want someone to wield the sword? This is proof that the Bible is a violent text. No, it's not proof that the Bible is a violent text. Because God is not for or against war. He is against you, the addressee, making war. Scripture is not, you know, a 19th century philosophical experiment on how to make a just society. Scripture is like an old Arab sheikh. It knows that Romans do what Romans do, and they're never going to change. But I'm not here to talk about whether or not the Romans are right or wrong. I'm here to tell you that this is how you have to behave, because you are my son. I'll take it one more step from what you said. He's not just against you making war. He's against you. Because whether you make war God is going to undermine you by saying, what are you doing to undermine the other, to hurt the other, not to love the other? But if you choose to be passive, it also undermines you. Who are you to sit there and do nothing? You need to get up and go do something. That's the interesting thing. In Matthew 25, we talked about this. You aren't allowed to just sit. You have to go out there and do something. So whether you're acting, you're undermined, or you're not acting, you're undermined. It doesn't matter. You are undermined. And that's the thing that always is the case. That's right. And therefore, and this therefore fits nicely with your comments, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. I mean, this is a very nice parallel with, for example, Ephesians 5. You submit to one another out of deference for Christ. It's the same. Paul's talking about marriage in Ephesians. He's talking about your relationship to your government in Romans 13. But he's saying the same thing. Scripture says the same thing over and over and over again. It says it in many and various ways because the human head is stubborn and hard as a rock. And also because you have to be all things, I think, to all people, as Paul says that he is elsewhere. And thinking about this, too, that the ruler is only a danger to those who are not good. This is interesting that this is in the context of Romans 1 and 2, where it's clearly established that all of you, every single one of you, and all of them are bad. So actually, that there would be a distinction between good and bad is kind of academic at this point, because in chapters 1 and 2, he determined that as far as good people, I'm not talking to them. I'm just talking to you. That's why when people hand me these pamphlets saying, what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about government and society? My answer to them is, 
It doesn't say anything about it. It says something about how you should act towards your neighbor, and it uses marriage, it uses your enemies, it uses the governing authorities, it uses your children, it uses the tragedy in your life, it uses the blessings in your life, it uses all of it against you to get it through your head that your chief and only responsibility and priority is to take care of those in need, especially those who are weaker, the needy neighbor. And the only enemy is your own ego. Exactly. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Yalla bye. Pay them taxes. Who cares? It's like the example from Mark where people get, again, all the silly philosophy and discussions about civil society. Jesus endorsed the separation of church and state when he said, render to Caesar what is it? No, he didn't endorse the separation of church and state. He said, the state is immaterial. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the kingdom of my father, which is to come, which is founded on the cross. I'm here to do the business of my dad. Why are you giving me something with a picture of Caesar on it? Just give tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It's like he says in Galatians, I took them aside and I was respectful. Everyone said that they were pillars, but God shows no partiality and I don't care. But since that's what, you know, since honor was due to them or respect or courtesy, I'll pay it because they don't function for me as an authority. They are not my reference. It's a beautiful word, reference. That's why Paul can say, just do whatever the Romans do, because ultimately you are looking towards the kingdom of God, not toward the kingdom of Caesar. Owe nothing to anyone, and this is the beautiful punchline of the section, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So what Paul is talking about in chapter 13 is love. Now, I know that I sound like a broken record. I keep hitting this point over and over again. Paul's kind of a broken record, too. Paul's a broken record, and I have bad news for you. The Bible's a broken record. That's why you can become an expert in one text, and it opens all texts to you. Just people ask me, how, how should I start reading Scripture, Father Mark? Pick the shortest epistle and read it a thousand times. You'll be fine. But the Old Testament's so long, blah, blah, blah. It just, just doesn't matter. Then read Ruth a thousand times. Don't worry about it. And then go meet someone who read Hosea a thousand times. And God will take care of the rest of the business. But you can't read Ruth one time and say, oh, I get it, we have to be nice to people. Or we have to be open to outsiders. No, that's not what scripture is saying. Because even when I say to you that the point is to love the neighbor, I know from Paul's perspective in the text that you still have no clue what love is. In this chapter, it does that precisely. It tells you in the beginning, don't worry about the earthly authorities, but submit to them. And then he gets to his final point at the end of chapter 13, which is the whole point is just to love and submit to everyone. So this is the funny thing. If you're supposed to be learning how to submit and love others, and he says to do this in the community, why would you not submit 
and love the authorities as well. Now, Martin Luther King said, I'm happy that uh, scripture says to love your oppressor and not to like your oppressor, because that would be much more difficult. But <laughs> you love your oppressor because you submit to them and you do what is the loving thing in every situation, every situation. Well, it's good you mentioned Dr. King because in a very specific way, he uses Paul's letters and the prophets to basically establish his program, his practical program of civil disobedience. So if you come away and you look at this and say, oh, this means that you shouldn't ever disobey the governing authorities, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that in all things, your only priority should be to love the neighbor. Now, Dr. King took a stand that you have to love the oppressor, and sometimes you love the oppressor by disobeying them in a nonviolent way when according to your conscience, the laws that they are wielding are unjust. But when then they lay their hands on you, you aren't allowed to fight back. You can't fight back because they are still wielding the sword. They are still wielding the sword at God's pleasure. Now, when you look at the civil rights movement in the United States, we know that it was the terrible, painful footage of black men being beaten and carried away and thrown in the back of vans and locked up. It was that footage that turned people to hear the word of God, that people from other groups and people who look different than you are also God's children, which means that technically, just as God allowed his son to be executed for his purposes, he allowed Dr. King and those who were committed to the gospel in the civil rights movement to be persecuted for his purposes. And this is the only valid way to approach life. Otherwise, you find yourself taking sides. That's the thin line that separates Malcolm X from Dr. King. Dr. King puts everything in the hand of the Lord and accepts that if he is beaten, it's because God allowed it. Malcolm X says, I'm being beaten because the white man is wrong and I have to push back because there's value in the black community. I agree with everything Malcolm says about the black community and about the evils of the white community. The missing piece is accepting that the abuses of the white community are to your salvation. And then submitting to them. And submitting to them and trusting that God will overcome them. And ironically, I mean, that's the true meaning of Islam. It's to submit. So, I mean, I think Malcolm got it wrong as much as I respect his, you know, commitment and his work in the 60s. I think he got it wrong. Anyways. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Thanks. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.